Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's just pause and breathe in and out that word. Take a seat. I'm sitting at a little vegan lunch spot I love in Costa Mesa, California with Alan Fadling. If you're not familiar with Alan, he's a writer and a longtime spiritual director to pastors. He's in his early 60s, and I think similar to John, was in that band of Southern Californian pastors who were in Willard's orbit for years, in Alan's case, in a kind of unofficial mentee-mentor relationship meaning he's been in the spiritual formation world since its rebirth in the Western Protestant stream of the church about four or five decades ago. To timestamp this, uh, this lunch was about seven or eight years ago before we started practicing the way at Bridgetown. And at the time, I believe the word for what I was is messed up. Through a long series of events, I had been turned on to formation literature. Willard was kind of my gateway drug. And I was just like drinking it all in. It was like discovering good water for the first time. But it was dawning on me and I was like really, like something had turned upside down in my heart because it was dawning on me that our model of church was in all honesty, not designed to yield a high level of transformation in our people. Not that people are widgets, and if you come up with the right strategic approach to church or the right model, you put them on the assembly line, and three years later, they come out living the Sermon on the Mount, if only. But the architecture of our church was not built with the intention of walking people into a way of life that was conducive to, in the language of the New Testament, transformation of a soul into a person of love in God. It was set up for good things, things like preaching the gospel or what we would have called evangelism or for mission or for making good friends in the city. It was not set up for what my friend Rich Viotis calls the deeply formed life. So I, I was a bit of a mess and I was living not through a crisis of faith, I've been through that too, but through a crisis of discipleship and kind of a crisis of church. I had somehow been through Bible college and seminary. I, I may or may not have graduated cuma laude, some Latin word, something. I was leading a church that at the time was quite large, but about 70 or 80% of what I was learning, 
about the healing and growth of the soul, about how we become people of love, about how we move deeper into union with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, most of what I was learning was new information to me. I thought, how did I get this far and not have a cursory grasp of a very simple question, how do people change? And I was searching for a way to integrate all that I was learning about formation into our church, but for the life of me, I could not find any working models. So I asked Alan, hey, do you know of any churches? Like not just, I have amazing books that I'm reading, but do you know of any churches that are actually working this stuff out in real time? In response, he gave me this framing of the spiritual formation movement in three waves. Okay, this is not like chapter and verse, this is Alan. So if you disagree, it's him, all right, not me. Wave one was books. Richard Foster, as you know, wrote Celebration of Discipline, I think in 1978, just about 30 minutes from here. Willard, after that, wrote The Spirit of the Disciplines. These two books arguably launched and kind of sparked a whole movement and launched dozens more, kind of bringing people from the church tradition that I grew up in, at least, back to this ancient kind of stream of the church that had been lost over time. And you could argue they came as a counterbalance to the rise of the megachurch and the seeker-sensitive movement, and to kind of, as a response, a loving response to the bankruptcy of discipleship, shallow spirituality, and ahistoricity that had become endemic in evangelicalism. That was wave one. Wave two, nonprofits were started to gather people together around these books and ideas and learnings and practices to walk people into ancient disciplines from the way. Renovari, of course, was the flagship, but you have the Transforming Center with Ruth Haley Barton, I think starting in the early 90s, and many more. But they were all outside of the local church. It's not a critique, it's just a statement of fact. They were run at a retreat center, or a seminary, or in a cohort model. Not bad, but not in the local church. Wave three, Alan said, was some churches dedicated a pastor or a staff member to spiritual formation. But he said, one, it was very few churches that would do that. And two, most of the time, it was just a rebrand of the small groups pastor or the family life pastor. But occasionally, oh, that was a little too close. We have inner healing prayer that will be available after this morning in session. But occasionally, they were actually doing formation work, whether that was spiritual direction or inner healing prayer or teaching on the disciplines or retreats or whatever. But it was very rare, and most of the time it was relegated to the periphery of the church as a whole, never to the center. And then Alan was quiet. And I said, so wait, where, when was wave four? When pastors woke up to the reality that how we do church in the modern West is, A, not the way that church was done in some of the best seasons of its history for 2,000 years, and two, is not conducive to transformation in a large number of people in any significant way. And we honestly need to remodel or re-architect how we do church to make formation the driving aim, if I'm reading the New Testament right. And he put his head down and said, sadly, it never happened. It never made it to pastors, and it never made it into the church. Apparently, and I have this third hand, so who knows, but whether or not this story is factual, it's still true. But apparently, it's not a theological statement, I promise. 
But apparently Willard on his deathbed said, if this movement doesn't get into the life of the local church, it will be nothing more than a passing fad. Because, and this was the logic as it was um, passed on to me, because the only institution that will be around a thousand years from now is the Church of Jesus. Not Practicing the Way, not Bible Project, not you fill in the blank, the Church of Jesus. Already, um, for all of the formation literature out there, from my vantage point, I see a sharp drop off and decline in the number of pastors and leaders that are even asking questions or interested in formation. I, I would argue the fad is already over. Now, pretty much every pastor I talk to, with the rare exception, would agree that discipleship or formation, and I use those two terms interchangeably, is a major weak spot in the Western church. Yet very few of them uh, propose workable solutions. So either, and I'm sure this is something like your experience, they give a scathing critique of the status quo, but not really with any better alternative beyond vague theories which is a dysfunctional pattern that my generation has honed to perfection. <laughs> or they default back to older models of discipleship that, and I don't want to sound ungracious, but honestly didn't work all that well in 1982 and definitely don't work very well in 2022 in the complexity of our cultural moment. But my thesis is that the crisis of discipleship in the modern church, and of course I'm speaking in that very broad sense of Western, isn't a bug, it's a feature. As the saying goes in the business world, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you are getting. Since at least World War II in North America and far beyond, and I know a lot of you are coming from other cultural contexts, but at least here, the gospel has been preached in such a way that you could become a Christian without becoming a disciple of Jesus. That's just true. We have separated Jesus' twofold call to make disciples that we just read, both baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or what I grew up hearing called evangelism, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, what was called discipleship. Now, of course, this raises the question, what exactly are we baptizing people into then? Is it even the kingdom of God in Jesus' imagination? Or is it just a Christianized version of the right or the left or materialism or careerism or American success or social justice or whatever it is? But this ripping apart of evangelism, quote, and discipleship, and to add insult to injury, the demotion of discipleship to an optional, secondary phase in your spiritual journey has created a two-tier church across the world, and for sure in this country, where we have a wide band of Christians who have a nominal faith that is really a syncretism of the way of Jesus and the left or the right, who are consumer-oriented in all honesty, and whose primary reference point for spirituality is the self-life, not the self-death. Then you have a minority who are actually following Jesus and living as disciples or apprentices. As you know, even in our post-Christian culture, something like, and I'm sure it's much lower for those of you from New Zealand or whatever, but in America, something like 70% of the population still identify as Christians, not in a city like Portland, but in the nation as a whole. 
but a number of independent surveys all put the number of Americans who are actually following Jesus at around 8%. When Barna did that, I'm sure a ton of you read it, that wide-ranging survey of millennial spirituality across 26 nations, East and West, all around the world, they came up with an even lower figure, as you would imagine, for millennials, of millennials who grew up in the American church. So not millennials in general. This is millennials who grew up in the American church. 8% are what they called resilient disciples. And that sounds cooler than it actually is if you've read the literature. That's not like the next David Platt or Francis Chan, all right? This is what John Stott called basic Christians. Like they go to church a few times a week, they read their Bible and pray, they're orthodox in theology, and they wanna live like Jesus, like basic Christians. Friends, 8% is not great. It's not even close. Cue the Willard quote that I just come back to again and again. The greatest issue facing the world today, let that sink in, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And for those of you who have not read The Divine Conspiracy, forgive the spoiler, but to save you 400 pages of tough sledding, <laughs> he said, what we need to move forward is what he called a curriculum for Christ-likeness. We have a curricula for books of the Bible, for systematic theology, for marriage and parenting, more and more for work and vocation. What we need is a curriculum for how to become a non-anxious presence, to let go of outcomes, to suffer lovingly, as Kassad said, to love your enemy, to forgive those who hurt you, to let your wounds, because we all have become sacred wounds. A curriculum to become the kind of person for whom living the Sermon on the Mount is the natural byproduct of your inner life of God and your outer life in God's community. Uh, the original name for what we call Practicing the Way was Curriculum for Christlikeness. I have all these old docs that say CFC on it. But we ended up kind of rebranding due to the word curriculum having negative kind of academic connotations. But the reality is Willard never wrote one. And that is not a critique, that is a call. On you, on me, on us, to take up the baton and carry forward what he and many others started or really restarted in our stream of the church. Now I can't speak for you, but I for one, you know, I just hit that kind of midlife, actually I, I'm full on into midlife at this point. <laughs> But I, for one, am not interested in spending the next 30 or 40 years of my life managing the decline of the traditional Western church. I have better things to do with my time. If the Portlands of the world are any indication of the future, that is a surefire way to bleed your soul dry. But I would love to give the rest of my life to working out a way of following Jesus doing life together in his family that I could hand down to my children and my grandchildren and should God tarry my great-grandchildren, 
that would empower them to walk with God for centuries to come, no matter where the culture goes or does not go. C.S. Lewis once said that the essence of friendship can be summed up in the simple phrase, you too? You too? You're into that too? Murders, only murders in the building? You too? <laughs> Hopefully it's deeper than that, but you know what I'm saying. This gathering is a you too moment. We're here from all over the world, and the questions that brought you here, the questions that you're asking are sadly not the questions that all pastors are asking. And that's not a judgment call. I don't mean that a moral statement. Just you're here with other people who are asking the same kinds of questions. We're here because of a holy discontent with the way things are in the church, with a burning in my bones, as Eugene would say. I view practicing the way as kind of an R&D department for the church at large. Like our aim is to kind of try out and test and explore and experiment all sorts of new models of church and formation and community architecture and then offer them back to you. But we're not a church. Very clear on that, right? We exist to serve you, to serve your church, your community, your people. And we are praying for pastors and churches to partner with who sense a kindred kind of call to function in a local church as a living laboratory for the way of Jesus in post-Christian culture, working on the integration of formation into the church itself. Not theorists, we have plenty of those, but practitioners. Now this idea of church as a living laboratory may sound appealing to those of you who are kind of on the front edge of things and are drawn to the creative side of pastoral leadership. But as you either know or will soon discover, formation is not a church growth strategy. I'm very sorry to tell you. <laughs> During our five year run at Bridgetown, you know, we had people move here from, literally, this is not an exaggeration, had people move here from all over the country just to be a part of it. And you know, Portland's like not the best place to move the last few years, just in case you've read the news, you know? But we've also had a lot of people move on. It's a kind of pruning strategy. Long term, it's a, it's a strategy for health and growth and life, but short term, it is a painful cutting away. But man, we are at a generational moment where we cannot think short term any longer. We cannot, we have to think long-term. You know, you think about the monastic orders, and if you hang out with me, I will talk about monks way too much, which is my psychosis, but there are around one million monks and nuns in orders in the Catholic Church, okay? 800,000 women, 200,000 men. But there are 1.26 billion Catholics, not Christians, just Catholics. That means the monastic orders make up less than point. 0.1% of the Catholic Church, and even less of the Church of Jesus. Yet think about their influence. Think about the tens of hundreds of millions of people following along with Pray As You Go and the Jesuits every morning. When a 25-year-old mom in your church reads a psalm to begin her day with God, and then if she has a minute before Johnny is screaming too loud, she just rereads it a second time a little slower, and prayerfully. She may not realize it, but she's practicing Lectio Divina from 6th century Benedictine spirituality. Now, not at 3 a.m. with the other monks chanting Gregorian, whatever. It's a diluted form, all right? 
but it's something there. You all know your church history. There were all sorts of reformations before and during and after the, Ref the Reformation. But they didn't split off from the Catholic Church, nor did Luther intend to. They started orders, or tribes, mostly of pastors or priests who were moved by a holy discontent to shun the compromise and complicity of most pastors with culture at large and the power of the age and political stuff and to live out a deeper surrender to Jesus and a greater discipleship. This is the call because it's always been the call. It's as old as Matthew chapter 28. I chose Matthew 28 to read before this session because a decade ago, this was the textual genesis of what is now practicing the way. I had an epiphany moment once while teaching this, which has not happened to me regularly, I promise. I'm, not, I'm charismatic, but not that charismatic, you know? Um, but I was teaching this, and I, I got to that line, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't, I don't do that, and I fancy myself a, a teacher. I teach people what Jesus has commanded them, not how to obey what Jesus has commanded them. And my friends, that's not the same thing. In business parlance, it's the difference between the what and the how. It's one thing to teach people Jesus' sex ethic. It's another thing to sit with a 24-year-old gay man in your church and walk him into a life of discipleship or a 14-year-old boy struggling with pornography addiction and walk him or her into holiness. It's one thing to say, Jesus commands you not to worry. <laughs> How's that working for you guys? It's another thing to teach and train people how to become a non-anxious presence who is living with a genuine trust in the love and the providence of the Father. Orberg that you will hear from tonight who is just a gift and a sage and a deeply godly man has said to me that formation is kind of like golf. Any golfers in the room? Yeah, I thought, I thought in a room of pastors there would be a lot more golfers. Okay, way to break the stereotype. I, I hate golf. I, I, I tried at one point and I thought it was so tedious and frustrating and I thought if I'm going to pay money to go outside, I want something to relieve my stress, not <laughs> exacerbate it. But apparently it's a thing. A lot of people like golf. But John used this great analogy. He said, you know, the easy part about golf is getting the right ideas into your head. A vision of the perfect swing, the perfect game, the perfect strategy. Like you watch some YouTube videos or you watch it on TV or whatever. The hard part that takes not a month or two or three, but decades or a life, is getting that vision that's in your mind's eye of the perfect swing, the perfect shot, all of that, into your body, into your muscle memory, so that when that moment of truth comes, the right shot, the right thing, the right move, it just, without even thinking about it, it just naturally comes out of you. In the same way, it doesn't take that long to exegete and get your head around the Sermon on the Mount, or even the New Testament's spiritual and ethical and communal vision. But to get that from your mind into your body, into what neuroscientists call the automatic responses of your body, into the memory that you carry in your nervous system, well, that's, that's a lifetime of discipleship and beyond. Now, how do we do this? How do we move from teaching people what Jesus 
commanded them to teaching people how to obey what Jesus commanded them. Or put another way, how do we reintegrate discipleship and formation into the fabric of our church? Or put still another way, what do we need to change in our church, in our leadership, in our pastoral culture, in our own life to turn this vision into a reality in our own body, much less in the people that we shepherd and serve? Well, as I see it, there are five shifts that need to happen in how we as pastors approach the church and approach our serving of the church. With the rest of our time, let me just suss them out. The first is from salvation as transaction to salvation as transformation. As I said, since at least World War II or possibly much earlier, the gospel has been preached in such a way that you can, quote, get saved without becoming an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. This goes, of course, to our understanding, or I would argue our misunderstanding, of the gospel and of salvation itself. In evangelicalism, the gospel has been summarized along the lines of, this is how, this is what I kind of would hear growing up. You are a sinner going to hell. God loves you and sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, you can go to heaven when you die. For those of you from the Reformed tradition, it's similar but a bit different. Here's one summary from Dr. Gary Bashir's at Western across the street. God is, perfectly, God is a perfectly just and holy God. You have fallen short of his glory. You cannot possibly justify yourself or earn your way back to God. But God has justified you himself on the cross. Hallelujah. Now, while everything in those two summaries, best as I can tell, is technically true, there are all sorts of problems with those two formulations of the gospel. Namely, they sound absolutely nothing like the gospel that Jesus preached. Listen to Mark's summary. Mark as in the writer of the gospel <laughs> of Mark. Just to clarify, he's a little bit of an authority on how to define the gospel. Listen to the writer of the gospel of Mark's definition of the gospel. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The other problem is that neither of those formulations, which agree, I don't take issue with at a theological level, but neither of those formulations of the gospel require you to become a disciple of Jesus in order to experience salvation. You know, Willard used to say that if people hear your preaching of the gospel and do not immediately respond by asking, how do I apprentice under Jesus? then you're not actually preaching the gospel. You're preaching something else. Let me give you a little plug for Ortberg's book, Eternity is Now in Session, which is out at the table. He writes about how there's all sorts, I'm just gonna quote you for most of the morning, if that's okay. He writes about how there's all sorts of talk about the problem of consumerism in the Western church. Is that a problem for you? Y yes, that's a rhetorical question, just to clarify. <laughs> that is a problem for you. But few pastors want to admit that there is a direct link between the consumerism and the, in our church and the way that the gospel has actually been preached in our church. And he has this great line about how if our preaching of the gospel is just harping on how it's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus has done for you, which sounds so beautiful, and you do not read that in the New Testament. Doesn't mean the idea isn't biblically sound, but you do not read that formulation anywhere in the New Testament. You definitely don't read that in Jesus. You don't even get close to that in Jesus. That formulation, quote Ortberg, can create consumers of Jesus' merit rather than disciples of Jesus' way. 
But when you read the New Testament or the church fathers or some of the best thinkers, sages, streams, contemplatives, theologians of the church for thousands of years, and you compare and contrast how they understood salvation with how we understand salvation, it is dramatic. For example, Paul writes about salvation in past, present, and future tense, as do all of the church fathers and mothers. Unless if I'm missing something, I don't think you would ever hear Paul ask, when did you get saved? For him and so many others, salvation was an ongoing process that begins, if I'm reading him right, at baptism, and does not end until death, or possibly never ends. St. Gregory of Nyssa, 4th century, defines sin as, quote, a refusal to keep growing, and argued that in heaven, perfection will not be a fixed state like in Greek thought, but a kind of endless growth, almost like a 4th century Christianized version of evolution and enlightenment, spiraling ever higher into new realms of human possibility in God. That's his reading of Revelation 21 and 22. My point is for them, salvation was not just a transaction, it was also a transformation. It was not just a change in legal status, it was the healing of the soul. It was not just pardon, it was adoption. Here's Ignatius, not Ignatius of Loyola and the Jesuits, but Ignatius of Antioch, who was likely a disciple of the Apostle John before he was martyred in 108 AD. He writes this. Just, I just want to give this as an example of how one of the church fathers is defining salvation. We have also as a physician, capital P, the Lord our God, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son and Word, before time began, but who afterwards became also man of Mary the Virgin. He was in a mortal body, being life. He became subject to corruption, that he might free our souls from death and corruption and heal them, and might restore them to health when they were diseased with ungodliness and wicked lusts. That's not how salvation was explained to me when I was growing up. And again, I don't mean that I probably sound more angsty than I actually am. Or maybe I don't. Maybe that's just <laughs> honesty. But he and many others called Jesus the doctor of the soul. Or some have argued that another, they didn't speak English, obviously, another translation is the divine therapist. They understood salvation to be a kind of healing and growth and formation of the soul into a person of love all through deepening union with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All I'm trying to say is that for them, formation wasn't something that happened after salvation, it was salvation. This is a view of salvation that I think, and I offer to you in somewhat genuine humility, we desperately need to get back to. Not just in our preaching and our teaching, but in our own life with God. Secondly, from information to formation. The Achilles heel of most discipleship models, in the West at least, is similar to kind of most post-enlightenment education models. They fall prey to Cartesian thinking. Cartesian as in Rene Descartes, the philosopher, who said, I think, therefore, I am. 
He called human beings res cogitans in Latin, or thinking things. Cue the Benjamin Franklin quip, the chief end of the body is to carry the brain around. In this model of human change, like you're, 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 you're like a computer. And this, this model, by the way, is systemic in all of Western culture, arguably all of secular culture, not just Christian. In this model, all you have to do is get the right information into the brain, just get the right data into the computer, and out will come the right behavior. Hence, if I had to articulate the theory of change that I grew up in, it would be something like this. And this was never said at an explicit value, and if it was, they would have said, we don't believe that. This is what I imbibed. Information plus inspiration plus willpower equals change. Information, sermons, biblical theology, doctrine, thinking God's thoughts after him, thinking the right things about God, plus inspiration, like there's a strong pietist kind of strain in evangelicalism. You have to get it into your heart. It has to touch the heart. It has to go beyond your brain, into your heart. Beautiful, I agree with that. Plus willpower, meaning now, now go don't be anxious this week. Now go stop lusting. Now go forgive your father. Just go do it, everybody. Information plus inspiration plus willpower equals change. How's that working for you? or in the charismatic tradition, or the Pentecostal stream of the church, which I love and have spent the last decade in and around. It's different, it's, I would argue it's more like encounter plus emotion plus willpower equals change. And the problem is that not that those two formulas are bad, it's that they are just so woefully complete for anything beyond early level change. They work really well at the beginning of your spiritual journey. But when you're a 42-year-old middle-aged man living through a freely chosen life crisis who thankfully has a really good therapist, but that's a whole other sermon, <laughs> they're just not that helpful. Not because they are bad, because they are insufficient. If you have yet to read You Are What You Love by Jamie K.A. Smith, you need to. It's, uh, have you read that? Yes. What a book. I love his claim, you can't think your way to Christ-likeness. Because, you know, we're not a brain on legs. We are a human, a whole person, a soul. So our model of discipleship has to be holistic. It has to penetrate our mind. Yes, I'm happy to let that stand as the portal to our soul, but also our emotions and our body and the automatic responses, good and evil in our body, and the memory that we carry in our nervous system from our earliest days of infancy and the way our brain is wired for attachment in our social world and the culture and our life habit architecture and so much more. This is why we avoid the language of the spiritual disciplines and prefer the language of practices because most people misunderstand the word spiritual, as you all know, to mean non-material, as opposed to how it's used by Paul and the New Testament writers, where it seems to mean animated by the spirit of Jesus. Hence, Paul writes about, in Corinthians, spiritual bodies, and he doesn't mean non-material bodies. That's, that doesn't even make sense. He means bodies that in the future are animated by the spirit of God. But the disciplines or the practices are actually how we get the non-material ideas of Jesus into the very material bodies of our souls. After all, in, in biblical theology or in what has been called a theology of the body, we don't have a body, we are a body. Maybe that's an overstatement, but our body is a part of who we are. Our discipleship, 
must form us at the deepest level of our body, of our soul, of our social world, of all that we are. Third shift is from formation as an optional aside to the driving motivation of every church. Formation, or again, discipleship, I would argue, and you are free, to, of course you're free to disagree with this, you're free to push back, but I would argue it is not a thing in the offering of the church of Jesus, it is the thing. It is the through line. Here's Paul in Galatians chapter four, verse 19, you all know it. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul sees his role as that of a mother to labor until Christ is formed in the church of Jesus. That is his telos, his end goal. Same with Ephesians, read it. This is where I would argue the missional movement went wrong and continues to fall short, where it would argue that mission is the driving aim of the church. My take on that is not so much that it's a bad idea, but that it's cart before the horse. That mission, and again, that's not biblical language, but it's a very biblical idea, is the byproduct of formation or discipleship. That in the four gospels, Jesus first called the disciples to come and be with him and follow him and apprentice under him and live as a student or learner of him. And then after a period of time, he sent them out. First it was come, then it was go. On the flip side, this is where the formation movement, I think has gone wrong and continues to fall short. The point of formation isn't to get lost in an introverted wellness spirituality. You know, Tyler, I remember, said that coming into Bridgetown. He's like, I feel like the greatest threat to Bridgetown is, like, wellness. <laughs> that, like, Sabbath will be there with, like, mindfulness and the yoga practice and really good organic green tea that's fair trade and awesome and cool branding and design, you know? Rather than as, how do I die to self and deepen my surrender to life in the kingdom? You know, Robert Mulholland, if you've not read Invitation to a Journey, what a magisterial book. His definition of spiritual formation is, quote, the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. And if you've read that, he just goes off and on and on and on about how it is for the sake of others. It is to become a person of love, and love is not just nice feelings toward the universe. The universe is so freaking easy to, to love. My teenage kids are a bit of a struggle to love. <laughs> to love people, real people, in real time, to move out into the world in love. And all of that means in the Christian definition of the word, justice, shalom, community, generosity, so much more. We have to see the primary call of a pastor, not as event production, or Christian TED Doc production, or social activism, or community engagement, or educational or ex you know, executive leadership. Not that any of those things are bad, but they are all subsumed under the primary call of the formation of a community of people into what Scott McKnight calls Christoformity, into Christlikeness. Out of that formation will come all the other stuff that we want and we know Jesus wants for us and our people. Number four, is the shift from part of the church to the whole. 
If you have ever read a book on formation, the odds are very high that, and I hope I don't upset people here, but that it was written by an older, white, introverted intellectual. And I don't necessarily mean that as a criticism. That's close enough to my reality that I quite enjoy it. <laughs> but that's not close enough to my kids' reality. And it's sure not close enough to the New Testament's vision of every tribe and tongue and nation around the table. To Ephesians chapter 2, one new humanity that defy the principalities and powers. You know, I watch my kids who are all teenagers now and all of their Gen Z friends. And, uh, you know, they are multi-ethnic. Not by decision or intention, but just by the reality of the world they are growing up in. This is beautiful. It's beyond beautiful. It's difficult. It's messy. It's hard, but it's beautiful. But the formation movement, for it to continue, if we are to take the baton and carry it forward, it has to move kind of out of the corner where it started, in the English-speaking kind of Western Protestant stream of the church. It has to move, here's a few examples, from boomers and a few Gen X to millennials, Gen Z, and beyond. From empty nesters with time for retreat to young parents with two-year-olds spilling milk on their Bible during Lectio Divina. From introverted intellectuals like myself or wannabe to all sorts of personality types. From the highly educated to the not that educated. From book-based to a digital age. From conservative Christian culture to secular post-Christian culture. From white majority to the full diversity and beauty of the kingdom of God. Not to pass the DEI test and not get called out on Instagram. But because Jesus died to bring life to a new humanity. Of Jew plus Gentile to every tribe and tongue and nation to bring about the multi-ethnic people of God doing life together around a table in defiance of the principalities and powers that have kept entire people groups in oppression and division. And because a sign of maturity in community is moving from affinity to diversity. And there's no better way to do that than to let go of your preferences and move toward love. My point is we have to carry this baton to new realities full of great joy. Finally, from self to community. A valid critique of the spiritual formation movement thus far is that, like so many things, it has been deracinated by the radical individualism of the West. And so it's constantly in danger, as all good things are, of devolving into a Christianized version of secular self-actualization. And so it has to go from something that you do alone to something we do in community. I love this from Joseph Hellerman, a professor from Biola. If you've not read his book, When the Church Was a Family, best book I've ever read in community. He writes this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. Now, 
the danger with, with framing these sessions in five shifts is that we have to go beyond, as I said, aspirational ideas into the messy world of far from perfect but still workable practices or models. A decade ago, we embarked over that now on a three-year reading and research project and traveled around and interviewed all sorts of really smart people to try to figure out how to integrate all that we were learning about formation into our church. I got the chance to sit down with a lot of kind of leaders in the formation world, and I was shocked at how many of them said, what you want to do cannot be done, don't even try it. I literally had so many people say, don't even try it, it will mess up your church, it will do damage, just find some spiritual directors. Like, for 2,000 people? I can't even find one for me. <laughs> That is still orthodox. Seriously, that's, that, that's not a bad idea. It's not a workable solution. And so I remember we sat around and we said, well, most people are saying this can't be done and if we try, we'll do more harm than good. But I thought, you know what? None of them have actually done it. They haven't tried and failed. That's good. So why don't we try and fail? And if we fail, at least we can go down swinging, you know? <laughs> And so we gave ourselves to it. I think this is why a lot of pastors settle for just working kind of Willard quotes into their sermons, but not messing with how they do church. <laughs> I sound a little bit feisty. I've been on sabbatical and I don't know, I'm less godly or something, I don't know. But you know, I just would come back to that Marshall McLuhan, he's a philosopher of media from Canada, you know, his saying, the medium is the message. That's right. And his point was that where and how you say something is just as important as what you say. He argued, for example, that TV could never communicate Christian religion because the medium is the message. So we decided we would rather try to integrate formation into our church and fail than just take somebody else's word that it can't be done. And what we came up with was V1 of practicing the way at Bridgetown and what we're doing next, and I'll be happy to chat with you about this afternoon, is V2, just kind of all the mistakes, trial and error. We did so many things wrong, but all that we've been learning over the last decade, and this time not made just for Bridgetown, but for you, for the church at large. And basically our first proposal that Tyler will walk you into in depth tomorrow morning is a rule of life. Um, you know, the early church had not one but two rules. They had the rule of faith and the rule of life. The rule of faith was a statement of belief about theology and doctrine. It was philosophical, it was conceptual, it was beautiful. The rule of life, read, you know, the Didache or something like that, a very early iteration, was pragmatic, and specific and messy. It was a commitment to apprentice under Jesus in the warp and woof of everyday life. The modern church still, for the most part, has a rule of faith, though it's usually called a statement of faith or a doctrinal statement, but very few churches still have a rule of life. This tells us so much about what's transpired over the last two millennia in the Western church, what's gone wrong and what needs to get set right. The search for a rule of life for the modern era, a world with smartphones and Wi-Fi, and political polarization and radical individualism and pastors who talk about Barack Obama is the holy grail 
of our time and the great call of our generation. But here's what I want to say to end. We are not calling you to sign up for our thing. We are inviting you and all of you online into, I, I guess what I would call, a learn, not even a tribe, a learning community. Our intention is to kind of stay together and come together in person and however else and come back together and learn from and with one another to share notes from one living laboratory to another living laboratory, to get around the table. How are you doing it? How are you doing it? What problems are you facing, all right? You're trying that model. What's the pros and cons of that? And to sort this thing out together. Change has to start somewhere. And we can't keep waiting around for somebody else to do it because it's not happening. Why not start here? Why not start now? Why not you? Why not us? Willard, because it's not a sermon on formation if you don't hit the 10 Willard quote point, <laughs> was once asked, how do you become a saint? And I was sitting with a guy who did his PhD on Willard, and he said, you know, I think that if Willard had been Catholic, he would, he would have been sainted. I think that's what he was. He was a holy one. John would know better than others. But Willard was once asked, how do you become a saint? And apparently what he said was, by doing the next right thing. You know, it's really easy to think about all that we can't do because of our small staff or no staff or our church's history or it's too young or it's too old or it's too creative or it's too traditional or our culture's complexity or our emotional state. I get it. But what can we do? And what can we stop doing? You know, there's a dual danger to any pastor's conference. On one hand, either you come and get overwhelmed by the comparison that we just never fully shake in our humanity, or the idealism of a kind of utopian church, or we get all fired up and full of energy and go home like roaring to go, and three weeks later, we're just like, I need Sabbath. <laughs> same old, same old. Neither is helpful. This is very slow work because all the best stuff in life is really slow. What's the line? Above all, trust in the slow work of God. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow with undue haste. Who knows what this new spirit forming in you will be? I'll end with this. For years, like I'm sure all of your churches, Bridgetown has like a, we don't call it welcome to church, but like a welcome to church class. It's called basic, Bridgetown Basics. Where a few times a year, we welcome people who are new to the church. It's urban context, so high turnover. Lots of people move in and out, all of that. And kind of walk them into community. And we'll talk more about that with the Bridgetown team in just a minute. And for years, I would kind of do the customary lead pastor opening, you know, supposed to be 10 minute, but 30 minute talk. <laughs> and, uh, and I would give my vision pitch, like all around in Portland as it is in heaven. I'd pull out my wannabe John Tyson, like inner apostle that doesn't exist, but I would pull that out and I would just like, we want to see the kingdom of God, John. We want to see the change, da, 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 da. And two people would just light up. Myself and Gerald over here, who is my co-pastor. <laughs> and I began to notice, like, because you do that same thing long enough, it's kind of on autopilot, you know? And you begin to notice people more. And I began to notice people's eyes just glaze over. 
And then I began to just have more conversations with people and realize, you know, everything I just said was beautiful, I thought. <laughs> and, and they thought so too. But most of these people were just trying to not get a divorce that month or figure out what to do with their 14-year-old kid who just started smoking pot or figure out why they don't feel anywhere close to God and they struggle and when they do make time to pray, they can barely focus. That they're, they're just exhausted. It's like the endemic moment of our culture. And so uh, this is before I started writing about hurry, but I just would start opening with Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary. Anybody weary? And it was just like 98% of the faces were like, yes, I'm weary. Do that, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life quote. And I would just say this very simple thing. Hey, you're gonna hear from our staff and our leaders. You're gonna hear about all the opportunities at our church, all the invitations. You're gonna hear about what we are asking you to say yes to. But I just wanna say this as loud as I possibly can. Please hear me right now. Look me in the eyes, pay attention. You can tune out Gerald, but don't tune out me, all right? <laughs> no, just kidding. Please listen to me. We are not calling you to do more. We are calling you to do less. This is an invitation not to addition, but to subtraction, to slow down and simplify your life around what really matters and what deep in you at some point you most desire. And I would just say the same thing to you. We're gonna talk about a lot of ideas over the next day. We're gonna throw a lot of things at you. You're gonna get to ask all sorts of questions, but please hear our heart. Please look me in the eyes and hear me. We are not calling you to addition, but to subtraction. Not to do more, you're already likely exhausted. I'm calling you to do less. Life is not easy, but there's a yoke that is, that you can take up and you can walk with Jesus and together. Let's just take a moment and pray. I would invite you just to clear off your lap, stretch your shoulders back, take a few deep breaths, Sit up as straight as you can if that's helpful and just, again, you have a body, you have breath, you have ruach, you have pneuma in it. Just breathe in and out, big deep breaths from your belly up to the crown of your head and back through your toes. Welcome you, Spirit of I just want to offer a very short meditation to you. I invite you just to imagine in your mind's eye, and this might feel weird for you and you don't need to do it, but God built us with an imagination. If I say, where is your suitcase right now? You picture it in your closet or the back of your car. If I say, do you have any children? You picture them in your mind's eyes. You tell me about them. So let's just do that with God. I invite you just to go to a place in your imagination from your memory. Don't make one up. Some place where you felt safe and happy and at peace and ideally close to God. A park or a camping spot or a backpacking trip or your living room early in the morning. Just take a moment, draw that to mind. Do your best to just really 
let your imagination go, see what does it sound like, what does the ground or the chair or the floor beneath you feel like on your feet, what do you hear, what does your body feel like, just try to really be in that memory, that place. And I would invite you just to ask Jesus to come and talk with you. And imagine him walking up or sitting or coming and looking you in the eye and making eye contact. And now just ask, Jesus, is there anything that you want to say to me? Just about me, not me the pastor, or teacher, or leader, or strategist, just me, the soul. Now, is there anything you want to say to Jesus? Just say that to him in the quiet of your heart. And now just ask Jesus, what is the next right thing? What's a small, doable step that you and your church, your leadership could take that Jesus may be asking or just inviting you into? Just ask Jesus, what is the next right Let's just stand now in prayer to Jesus. Just with our body, stand before him. If you want to put your hands out before you, you can. You don't have to, just as a way of offering your whole self and vulnerability to him. Jesus, here we are. Like Isaiah, we are just painfully aware of how woefully inadequate we are. We are people of unclean lips. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us, sinners. And we just say at the same time, here I am, here we are, send us. We offer all that we are, the good and the bad, 
I'm sorry, this is the best you could come up with. But we thank you for your unfailing love and delight in us. Thank you for your, not just compassion, but your affection. Thank you, bless you, we love you, Jesus. Love you, Father. Love you, Holy Spirit. We offer all that we are to you.